0: Welcome to the eighth episode in the IPA's 10-part series, the IPA's Great Books of Literature podcast. My name is John Roskam, the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. In this series, Andrew Bolt and I talk about 10 of the great books of literature with our compere, James Bolt, the host of the IPA's Young IPA podcast. In this episode, we will be discussing the Radetsky March by Joseph Roth. The other seven episodes we've recorded are all available from iTunes, on our website and on any podcast app you choose. The power of the Redetsky March comes from the combination of its brilliant narrative and description and the way Joseph Roth examines the great forces of history in the 20th century, notably, of course, nationalism. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes and tell your friends and family about the show.
1: Okay, so before we jump in, I'll just give a brief plot overview. So the Radetzky March chronicles the decline and fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire through the eyes of three generations of the novel's protagonists, the Trotter family. First published in 1932, the Radetzky March is Joseph Roth's uh, best-known work. The book begins at the Battle of Solferino, where the first Trotter saves Emperor Franz Josef I from being killed by snipers. The Emperor elevates him to the nobility, but this in turn fuels his family's decline, echoing the similar decline of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Similar to the Leopard, the Radetsky March deals with the themes of culture and patriotism amidst the declining empire, most notably through a disagreement between the First Trotter and the Emperor over an example of historical revisionism in the National School History textbooks, where the Emperor points out that true facts do nothing to fuel patriotism. The Trotter line meets its end in the First World War as does Emperor Franz Josef and, ultimately, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, all far diminished from the esteem and respect they demanded at the novel's outset. So, gentlemen, I think we'll start with the author's life. So, Andrew, I know you have a few thoughts. Yeah, Josef Roth. I mean, I think this is one where um, I think it's important to know the
2: context of the, you know, a bit about the author's life and his friendships and his sad death. because And the it, death of his friends. And oh, the <laughs> death of his friends, particularly the death of his wife. That's right. Um, because this is this probably explains the elegy that he wrote in the Rudezky March for the disappearance of the Austro-Hungarian Empire into which he was born as well. Jo- um, uh, Roth was uh, uh, Jewish. I think that's important to note. Uh, he was uh, born in nineteen 19- in eighteen ninety four so just before the turn of the century, in the dying days of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and born in a Jewish, almost exclusively Jewish town in the far eastern part of the empire, near the Russian border, um, called uh, uh, Brodsky. And there, uh, Brody, sorry, Brody, uh, now in Ukraine. And the Jews in Ukraine uh, was later the site of, pogroms and in particular the Nazis came in and de- devastated. A city of about, well, I call it a city, about 10,000 people, 13,000, something like that. Very, very poor in the marshes there. A great tank battle in World War II was fought not far from there. Uh, marshes, poor, trading. Uh, this is where part of the... Um, a town on the edge of the empire, isn't it? Yeah. That is exactly right. And it's, it's one of the, it's where the denouement of the novel... The Rudetsky March is actually based where uh, the anti-hero or hero is transferred in the, uh, to the edge of the empire, awaiting the invasion uh, from Russia for World War One. But uh, So he's born there, very poor town. His uh, father he never knew. Uh, he's, he's brought up by his mother and his relatives, educated in German language, of course. Uh, goes to Vienna. Uh, starts running for left-wing newspapers. His uh, byword, by name, is the Derroto Joseph, the Red Joseph. Um, so he's left-wing, which is interesting, now given his love of the empire. In the end, he become he goes to Germany at one stage, and becomes probably its most famous, uh, most well-rewarded journalist, uh, writing about the dissolution of empire, among other things. It's interesting that he barely notices the rise of the Nazis. This is really interesting, like the, cabaret, the you know the opening scene from Cabaret, where you know camera shot pans in slow mo, and you see all this various colour and just a flash of red, you know, for someone's armband. He barely notices it, but when he notices it, he sure does. And
0: he- and I think he wrote about Adolf Hitler in the nineteen twenties. So I think the first mention of Adolf Hitler in in fiction was by Roth.
2: Well, and in fact, in 1933, uh, uh, the, the um, Rodetsky March was written in 1932. His books sometimes are slapdash. They really show he was really writing for money a lot of the times, very fast to very, pay for alcohol, uh, to pay for booze, I'm afraid, which uh, killed him in the end, uh, aged only 44. Um, but the Rodetsky March is probably his greatest work, and I don't think there's any sign of rush there, really. Uh, he had a huge, amazing eye for detail, the journalist's eye for detail. And in 1933, he, when he was now getting famous as a novelist, finally, he fled to Paris uh, eventually. Uh, but 1933, he saw, with the rise of the Nazis, he said, the Jews have lost. He said, we were the first, we are the first victims. In a fantastic essay he wrote in 1933 called Alto de Fe of the Mind, he said, you know, very few, I'm quoting here, very few observers anywhere in the world seem to have understood what the Third Reich's burning of books, the, expression, the expulsion of Jewish writers and all these other crazy assaults in the intellect actually mean. He says, now as the smoke of our burned books rises into the sky, because the, Jew, the Nazis have burned the books of Jewish writers, as German writers of Jewish descent must acknowledge above all that we have been defeated. But he says... He says that the, we are proud of this defeat. We stood in the front row of the defenders of Europe, and we were the first to be defeated. He made the point. We are the first. This, they're not just against Jews. they're against The Nazis are not just against Jews. They're against Western civilization. And, and Maurice Samuel, the great Jewish writer, was saying the same sort of thing. Uh, people didn't understand this. And he's saying this is the death of a civilization. And it was a civilization, much like the Empire, the, the Austro Hungarian Empire, that allowed a poor Jew from the utmost extreme of the empire to succeed in the world of letters. Civilization did that. Western civilization did that. And in the book, The Radetzky March, which mourns the death of an empire in which all the various ethnic mixes came together. In a sort of civilization, anyone could come to the top almost, you know, and through Jewish talent writers and, and through talent, effort
0: regardless of nationality or background. Absolutely, almost, or of class, because we'll come to the the class of the
2: heroes in the book. To a certain extent, that is absolutely correct, and uh, you know, given all the limitations of that time. And, uh, and, and it's so interesting. So he's mourning the death of that kind of thing and the destruction. This is the theme in the Dredetsky March that ultimately this great empire under this aged monarch, Franz Josef II, was going to collapse into a melt, you know, in various uh, countries marked out by nationality, by race. And he just saw that this. Was something so destructive, to civilization, and just to finish, in the end, he drank himself to death in Paris in 1939. And for me, reading the Redetsky
0: March or anything about uh, Roth or any of his um, journalistic writings, which we'll talk about, it's so interesting to ponder. Uh, Redetsky March was published in 1932. Hitler was not yet in power. He came into power, of course, in 1933. So we read it today. Um, as an analogy for the for the world that that disappeared with the first and second world war um, and we read it post-war but for me um, as you contemplate the book um, it is a post-world War one novel and and it's difficult to to read the work without knowing what comes next and for roth to be talking in 1932 about nationalism about anti-semitism about the death of god about the death of culture the death of religion um it is uh almost um it, it's it's not just a a foretaste of what is to come and, he, and he's not simply a prophet because there were some others uh talking in the 1930s about what could be happening but for me it's a really important book about western civilization Uh, And not just about uh, Europe in in the um, Middle War years, but Europe in the 19th and 20th century. It gives us an insight into how uh, people thought of empire, thought of themselves, thought of their culture. And exactly as Andrew, you mentioned, um, the idea that for all of the the hidebound nature of the community, uh, a Jew of talent. Anyone of talent, of effort, uh, could to some to some extent succeed. Uh, he was a very well-paid uh, journalist, one of the best-read journalists in Germany. Uh, he lived in hotels. He travelled extensively. He wrote um, these lovely pieces uh, for newspapers, these sketches of a couple of thousand words. And exactly, Andrew, you said he had this eye for detail. I'm thinking it's sort of like a Hieronymus Bosch. Of, of literature and I, I want to um, quote one or two things from, from his writing and the only thing I'd add, uh, Andrew, to what you said about his life is um, that he fought in the First World War but we're not quite sure what he did. There's no, no. There's, there's no biography <laughs> as yet published of, of Roth if ever there is. Um, there's some wonderful uh, trans, translators and translations of his work um, but to this day we don't know, did he have a desk job, was he in intelligence, did he see fighting... We I don't, don't know. know that he did much fighting, <laughs> but
2: he he did he did uh, serve in the in the Austrian army, and you can tell you know from his knowledge of his hero's life in the Redesky March uh, that he knew. Something and and of as you said,
0: this is the contradiction: he was he was he was left leaning, but not extreme. Well, um, I think but was he's but he was left leaning, changed. Yeah, because but changed.
2: It, it's interesting. A couple of details we need to mention about his life, just to finish uh, off that part of it. In. Uh, he married uh, uh, a woman, Friederike, who turned out to ha- ha- be schizophrenic, and this was a, a great trouble to him. Obviously, she uh, uh, lived for years in a sanatorium. But worse, of course, um, she f- was later murdered in the Nazi eugenics program. You know where they bumped off defectives. He saw, you know, eugenics was widely supported for a while, and I guess you know, in his own life, we we see. So much that's prophetic, you know. He knew things were going badly, and boy, did they go badly with him. He was also very friendly uh, with a uh, with one of the world's most well-read and admired authors before the world before World War II, Someone who's almost no one reads now, Stefan Schweig, also Jewish. That was at the time hugely popular. Hugely, hugely popular in Germany. Hugely, hugely popular. I think now. Um, I think about the only thing anyone bothers to read about Stefan Stefan Schweig is probably um, his rather sad um, memoirs, uh, Der Welt von Gestern, The the World of Yesterday, which, oh gosh, that's sad. I mean, and I think he he wrote it from place of sadness before he killed himself in uh, South America. Uh, This is a bloke, also Jewish, lived in Splendor in Salzburg, and continually gave money to Stefan Schweig to keep him going. Stefan Schweig knew, uh, gave money to Roth to keep him going. Stefan Schweig knew, I think, that Roth was the greater talent, but Stefan Schweig was the greatest success. And Roth knew the same too, and he kept writing passive-aggressive, angry letters, and also waking Stefan Schweig up from trying to, from this, amazing view that he had that intellectuals could lead the world with their better example and their socialist talk into a bright new civilisation... While the world was collapsing around him. Absolutely correct. And Schweig, I I really marked Schweig down. Jews were being mass-murdered in Germany. Schweig had his freedom in South America and he killed himself in despair. Now, I know there was room to despair, but when people are getting killed... Against their will in Germany, you kill yourself in despair in South America. I just think that's wimping out of the battle. Am, am I too harsh? I'm too harsh. No, you're not too harsh. Anyway. Look, I
0: mean, I mean we were coming in, we were all a bit down. Um, but be, 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 <laughs> being thoughtful and reflective uh, to talk about Roth and what happened to him and his friends and his family, I, I think is the only way... To approach this, and we're looking for it's hard to find something redeeming. It is, it, is, it is a book of nostalgia, it is a book of what we have lost. And again, as I said, given it was published in 1932, it's a book about what more we are about
2: to lose. I think that's right. And just the I know we've said finally, finally, twice, I think, but uh, well, there's just, a lot to say just finally about Roth's <laughs> character when we, before we get to the plot of the book. Uh, Schweiger at one stage uh, this is uh 19th, in the 1930s uh, 1938 uh, Schweiger the, by then to, by then to, to, repaired to London to get away he finally realized he had to give up Salzburg and stop making uh, accommodations um and he wrote to Roth saying stop whinging about that you know everyone's done you wrong and the publishers have done you wrong and because Roth was a self pityer let's he felt very that. sorry for himself, very all, for of him. time, yeah, all of the time, <laughs> as you can tell, and resentful that Schwaig was much richer. and And he said, you, "You know, look, in material terms, you're a poor little Jew." He says, uh, Schwag to Roth, you're a poor little Jew, uh, almost as poor as seven million others." And you know, just fight back, you know, just got to brace up, man. <laughs> essentially, and Roth wrote back, and I think this is interesting how he saw himself. This. Third, uh, when he was in Amsterdam uh, just a couple of years before his death. You know, you've no need to tell me of all people what it is to be a poor little Jew. I've been that since uh, 1894, and with pride, a believing Eastern Jew from uh, Ratzavilla, that's the biggest city next to where he was born. I would drop it if I were you. I've been small and poor for 30 years. Heck, I am poor, but nowhere is it written that a poor Jew may not try to earn a living. That's the only advice I turn to you for, because he was trying to... So there's... You can see, I think, the resentment, the sense of where he is and how important it was to have a culture and, 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 and an empire that allowed someone like that to succeed. And that allowed him to to fit in and, of course,
0: um, Jews fought in, and there were many Jews in the Austrian-Hungarian uh, army, uh, in the Prussian army and then in the, in the German army after that. Just before we talk about the book i just want to give a little insight um, into some of his writing because we talked about the success of his journalism and there's many books published now uh with excerpts of his articles and his his, letters and his letters which are magnificent um and there's a very popular book the hotel years which has come out a couple of years ago with um some of his selections and there's Writings in the German newspapers that you don't get so much these days, they're uh, 1,000, 2,000 word sketches of characters or things that he's seen or, or reflections, and it's, it's about um, often um, those at the edges of
2: society, which he regarded himself as being part of. That's interesting. That, 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 uh, I can't even pronounce the French. Will you Fouilletong, or however you pronounce it. Sorry. Oh, that's Sorry a better hurry. pronunciation <laughs> than I could give it. But, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> but a, a mix it is. Of, yeah. of, of of description and opinionating, which is sort of gone. But, he, like you say, people on the edges. He would go through Berlin, for instance, and interview people who had come from the edges of Prussia or something, you know, the, the and often Jews as well, and the desperate and all that. They're brilliant insights into a different world of the voiceless as well. And,
0: and, it, and it captures something about the society. So just before we do the book and and the plot, uh, this is from 1919. So how old is he when he writes this? 25, 26 um, of one of his early sketches. And it starts, To the many scenes of war misery in Vienna... A new one was added a few days ago. A man returned from the war in the form of a hinge. Invalid with shattered spine. Moves almost inexplicably inexplicably through Katnestras selling newspapers. A dog sits on his back clever well-trained dog riding on his own master and making sure he doesn't lose a single paper a modern fairy tale being a combination of man and dog thrown up by the war and set down in the misery of Kutna. Strasser a sign of the times in which dogs ride men to protect them from other men and then he says at the end uh, on the invalid's chest dangles an Emperor Karl Troop cross on the neck of the dog, a mere dog tag. The bearer of the Troop cross is a victim. The one with the dog tag is active.
2: Well, it's interesting. Oh. This eye I- for observation comes <laughs> through in the Detsky March too. You know, I'm thinking of lines like, uh, he felt as though he'd been condemned to spend the rest of his life in borrowed boots on a slippery floor. The sense of you know, dislocation. It's, it's then it's
0: funny, and we've we've talked a lot about a, a lot of great books and 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 authors that can provide descriptions. But I'm I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Dickens had a, a great eye for for description. Mm. Trollope was able to capture conversations, as we talked about in the previous episode. Roth does something completely different. It's like looking at a Picasso
2: painting in words.
0: Yeah, almost. but I, th- I
2: think. I think, you know, like Trollope had a very great eye for how manners worked Mm. and how, you know, how much people earned and how they would deal with each other and the exercise of social power. He was very strong on that. And Roth is a little bit the same, but I think he's always got an idea of, he's got a a keen eye for how things are falling apart and how bad. Things could be. And just how much people, you know, the effort needed to bring people together. Radetzky March, okay, well, that's 1932. The first English translation was in 33, so it didn't take long. But uh, it's true to say that Roth is uh, more famous in Germany and Austria than he is uh, And undergoing abroad. a little bit of a renaissance. I think that's in, correct. I in recent correct.
0: years. And there's the um, famous translator Michael Hoffman, I think his name is also a the poet, poet. Yep. Um, who, who um, and we could have a separate conversation about the nature of translation, but he says, I'm not going to be literal, I'm going to capture the spirit. And he certainly does. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, I always worry about You're translations that? that tries to do that. Because I'm really... Keen to a know bit more the intrigued? author's own words. so oh. yeah, But how do you capture German words Well, in I know. I ordered a German <laughs> book, but it only got here <laughs> yesterday, so I haven't had a chance <laughs> to go through uh, to compare one with the other. But um, it's interesting. Rudetsky March is one of those books. Um, which we tend to take it for granted, particularly now with you know, Netflix series or something like that. It's one of the few first that has a historical figure that comes in and out of the novel, borrowing from history, fairly... Accurately, really, I mean, we've seen a whole genre of that in the 20th century, of course, uh, and that is, of course, Franz Joseph. Uh, I said the second before is Franz Joseph the first, of course, Franz, uh, Franz Joseph of Austria, who, who was an emperor for an extraordinary long time. Um, I think it was in his uh, 80s when he when he died, and uh, there's there's some oh, about 86 or something like that. Um, th- that emperor was very faint, the mutton chop whiskers, people might remember. He died in 1916. By then, he'd lived too long, um, and with his death, well, his nephew came to power, but it was all over, and the empire collapsed uh, very, very soon after, in the middle of World War Two. Now, World War I. Uh, World War One. sorry. World War One. He'd seen a lot of tragedy. He'd married his own princess Di, uh, of course, uh, the Empress Sisi, who was herself assassinated. They lived apart. Uh, that was sad, and. He saw the uh, son uh, killed in uh, Sarajevo, and that's uh, nephew. The nephew, gosh, I'm getting the family thing completely wrong. Um, the uh, his nephew, who uh, he didn't like, and who he he didn't like was a bit too liberal. And uh, yes, exactly, he was one of those headstrong men that was going to fix the empire, and shot dead in the Sarajevo, and of course that pro- uh, started the war, which finished off the empire completely. So, he knew a lot of tragedy in his life. Um, but he was the final glue, nevertheless, that held the empire and together. And he was
0: revered. I mean, a holding there was something like 11 uh, major language groups in the empire, and uh, this was the thing that, that Roth talked about, that he, he was the father figure.
2: He was the Correct.
0: patriarch to all the nations and all the nationalities. Including the Jews.
2: Well, yeah, look, the, you know, the Habsburgs had once ruled almost all of Europe. I mean, they ruled Spain and Holland and Belgium and uh, tiny bits of France and uh, Austria and uh, obviously, and all the way to the Russian border and beyond into Ukraine, Poland, that as we know now, it was just the most extraordinary empire. But this time, of course, they'd lost. Uh, you know, Spain wasn't there and, and all that. They'd been you know, contiguous, going all the way almost to the Greek, what today is almost the Greek border. So it was a huge, huge empire, uh, con- as you say. Now, this book merges the life of Franz Josef with the life of the Trotter family. The von Tr- uh, They became the von Trotters because <laughs> they got ennobled. Three generations. The first one, a man who was a Slovenian, although... Roth gets something wrong there. He describes Slovenia as a place where it has mosques, so it's a bit unclear whether he actually meant maybe Bosnia or something like that. Or he was being deliberately vague. Or deliberately vague, but at any rate, so the guy is a a sergeant in, uh, uh, or just in in the army, and he sees he sees uh, the emperor exposing himself to danger in the Battle of Solférino. Uh, which is mid-19th century. Um, And he he says the idiot is attracting fire, enemy fire from snipers to us. We could get killed. And he roughly pushes the emperor emperor down to the ground and takes the bullet in the shoulder himself. For that act of supposed heroism, he is made a baron. His next uh, son... And given money and made and given wealthy. money and a, a made wealthy.
0: From a peasant background.
2: He gets astonished that his exploits are then put in the textbooks as an act of superb heroism and that he becomes... From a cavalry from, officer and, and he and was very a, upset that he wasn't a cavalry He was an officer. infantry and now then he becomes a cavalry officer because that's a better story. And he demands the emperor squash the story, which he does. He gets so disillusioned about how things are misrepresented. He forbids his son... To become a soldier, he becomes one of the bureaucrats who keeps the empire together. But
0: but, but just before we move off the beginning of the book, the point about, and they they, they call the first trotter the the hero of um, Salferino, uh, and when he complains to the emperor about the misdescription of his heroic deeds in a school textbook, the, the emperor basically
2: says, well, I know it's not true, but we must maintain the myth. We because mu- the emperor knows it has to be kept together. It has to
0: be kept together. And, and the, one of the, the points that, that Roth continually makes is not that he supports empire building, but his view is that these nationalities and these languages and these religions um, must be kept together so that we can live together. This is the interesting can thing. Can live the together emperor- in a multicultural society before multiculturalism was invented. Absolutely correct, and the emperor
2: actually knows. Treated and the as emperor a knows he it too. He knows it, and he knows it is probably the last guy. This is one of the marvelous things. We'll get to one of the, perhaps the set piece, the most brilliant set piece in the novel later. Just to put it in context. You but, mean the storm? No, I think. Well, it's, or the so duel. So, no, I'm thinking <laughs> the when the emperor's on, uh, has his even though it's more about the trotters, when the emperor comes on to centre stage and reviews the army exercises... Oh, I, I we'll talk about that. ..and meets I, Lieutenant Trotter, I think the third trotter. two other great oh, there set are. pieces look, in it. Look, there are, there are. there are. There are many. The interesting thing about the Battle of Solferino, of course, and why it casts such a shadow, it's not so obvious to English readers, but to Germans, or particularly Austrians, that know, that really marked... Yeah, you know, Napoleon smashed the empire around like nobody's business... But then it limped back, you know, Metternich helped to keep it together. In 1859, Emperor Franz Josef, then young, relatively young, goes and commands his empire against the French army and a Sardinian army, both led by their rulers too. It's the last battle in history where the rulers actually... Lead their own armies into battle, and how does that work out? Not very well for the <laughs> Austrians. It marks their slow decline. They're fighting in Italy. The Austrians eventually, of course, lost their Italian possessions, including Venice. Um, the Emperor lost it. Um, he lost also Lombardy in this battle. This casts a shadow over the book. Solferino. His the, the, the oh, I said sergeant, lieutenant. Lieutenant Trotter's is the hero of the Battle of Solferino, but it was a mark the beginning. Of the, the irony
0: end. that a, a hero of a
2: battle, that was a defeat. It, correct. Absolutely correct. But they keep on side talking note. about
0: the hero of, of, of Salferino um, as if it didn't matter, as but if it, the result of the battle didn't matter. It,
2: but the Austrians lost probably almost every battle. Yeah. The only reason the Habsburgs and the Austrian Empire were so big was... Not battles, but marriages. The (laughs) Habsburgs were geniuses at uh, marriages that made them bigger, uh, made them more powerful. Of course, not only did the Solferino, it's actually, side note, um, it so horrified one of the uh, people there, a young Swiss man visiting, that it eventually led to the creation of the Red Cross and the Geneva Conventions. That was that battle. He then, uh, his son, becomes uh, district commissioner, uh, very much in the traditions and all that of the empire. He's ennobled, those son of the peasants. And his son, around whom most of the books send, uh, is, a, is a lieutenant. Carl Mi- Joseph. Carl Joseph, a baron, and originally in the Ulans, a, a um, cavalry regiment. And then after uh, a terrible scandal involving uh, duels and debts, he, uh, in despair, joins the uh, A a regiment on foot Which is not so good And eventually gets killed Fetching water Uh, For some reason It's almost like suicidal Uh, It's in World War 2 The Russians have advanced The soldiers are are, uh, World War 1 World War 1 I keep saying Mm -hmm. World War 2 World War 1 The soldiers are thirsty He just thinks Bugger this I'm going to get some water for them And the bullets are zipping around him He gets killed His father and then his father also soon dies after attending the funeral of uh, Franz Josef, who dies, catching a cold, and it all ends in despair. Empire gone, Franz Josef gone, family gone, family disillusioned. Um, that's in, in brief the story. Now, to the themes, John.
0: The themes are the decline of an empire and the decline of a family, um, and reading it now, um, the ideas of honour and and respect. You mentioned um, the the controversy uh, that the younger son was involved in. Uh, two people die as a result of him walking home a woman from the theatre. Um, and in what I think is one of the great set pieces of the book, there's a duel between the officious army officer and the Jewish. Doctor, uh, who knows that he is about to die in a duel at 7.20 in the morning.
2: Because He's, he can barely see straight. Because he,
0: he can can't barely shoot. see straight. But uh, following a theme of clarity just before the end, just before death, uh, Roth puts into um, the mind of, of the Doctor as he fin- fires the final shot, or the only shot in the duel, and um, at last, he can see straight. He has a degree of objectivity. Um, and again, uh, this is the theme of, of decline and decay. Then, of course, on top of that, there's the politics. And um, Redetsky March has been called one of the great political novels of the age. Um, and it presages the discussion about nationalism because, of course, nationalism, language, national identity, overrides uh, the discussion of the future of the empire and Rothriding in in the 30s um, looks back and thinks, well, could this uh, nationality ever um, have been uh, accommodated within an empire? And he has this lovely um, description of some of the nationalities in the empire, nearly every sentence of which would breach Australia's section 18c. So he puts into the the voice of one of the characters. The um, the German Austrians were waltzers and brusy crooners. The Hungarians stank. The Czechs were born bootlickers. Boot the Ruthenians were treacherous Russians in disguise. The Croats and Slovenes, whom he called cravats and slobbers, were brush makers and chestnut roasters. And the Poles, of whom he himself was one after all, were skirt chasers, hairdressers, and fashion photographers. Yet, <laughs> they all lived together somehow. Yeah,
2: but the, the book sees makes clear the various um, tensions. I mean, at one stage, for instance, some of the army officers uh, speak Hungarian in front of the others. And one of the officers protests, uh, speak German, please. And there's a little resentment there. Uh, the, the Hungarians... Uh, officers this is just on the before World War two uh, one just before the break uh, outbreak of World War one the the uh, Hungarian officers clearly don't care about the emperor at all you can tell the tensions um, so there's that that one there's also the anti-semitism which has got a frightening echo for us knowing what was to happen in Austria and and Germany not much later and of course the arguing outside of town, which was destroyed. Roth wasn't to know that, but was destroyed by the Nazis in, in World War II, the complete decimation of the Jewish population there. Um, I think we should also explain the title, the Rudetsky March. The reason the Ruditsky, it's called the Rudetsky March is one of the most, well, probably Johann Strauss's seniors, most famous ever tune, the Rudetsky March. Da-da-dum, da-da-dum, dum-dum, dum-dum, dum-dum. Anyway, I won't go through. Keep Holland. going. That's no, I won't. Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, it was uh, composed in honour of Field Marshal Josef Radeski von Raditz, who was one of the heroes of uh, military heroes of of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and that tune was played everywhere, and it forms part of the memories of the young, the, the third generation, the young uh, Baron von Trotter. He remembers. The band playing outside his father, the district commissioner's office, every uh, Sunday, I think it was, and the bandmaster comes in is Jewish uh, and they have a drink and everything and it's part of the whole routine. He loves the emperor when he's a boy. He loves the emperor. This is the myth, you know, this whole thing. The emperor, by the way, knows his loved and makes sure that when he goes out in public, even when he's old, old age and feeling tottery and he walks privately in small steps, He remembers that the crowd love him for his long, supple stride, so he makes sure he tries to walk supply. But anyway, uh, Lieutenant Trotter, the the young, the third generation, he said he knew all the members of the... I'm quoting now. He knew the names of all the members of the royal family, loved them all deeply, with a child's unquestioning devotion. Above all, the emperor himself, who was great and kind, lofty and just, infinitely remote and infinitely close, and to no one more than the officers of the, his army. Ideally, one would die for him to music and preferably to the music of the Rudetsky <laughs> March. So that is it. And then you see the despair gradually as he realises
0: his lost heart. And, and one of the reasons why this is described as a political novel um, is that that politics of belonging, of emotion, of, of heritage is replaced by the ugliness of nationalism, the, the selfishness um, of people only thinking um, for themselves. And again, um, about halfway through the book, uh, Roth puts into um, the, the words of a character, what is about to happen, the new politics Um, this era no longer wants us this era wants to create independent nation states people no longer believe in god the new religion is nationalism nations no longer go to church they go to national associations and he goes on monarchy our monarchy is founded on piety on the faith that god chose the habsburgs to rule over us and so many other christian nations the emperor of Austria-Hungary must not be abandoned by God, but God has abandoned
2: him. And the emperor himself knows it too. In the emperor's own words, uh, <laughs> well, this is ascribed to the emperor. It's not a direct quote of the emperor thinking, but it says of, of him, He could see the great golden sun of the Habsburgs sinking, smashing on the bottom of the universe, crumbling into various little suns, which would shine as independent bodies to independent nations. They've just had enough of my rule, thought the old man. This is part of that marvellous chapter where he goes to the window at the brink of an army exercise. They can only do army exercises. When they're actually in the field, the Habsburgs get smashed. And uh, he meets the young lieutenant Trotter um, during this army thing. Uh, lieutenant Lieutenant Trotter can't help but notice the aged emperor has a drop of snot coming from the tip of his nose. Um, it's just so sad. But the emperor is standing there in his nightshirt in front of the window, scared that his own staff would see him and see him as just a, a bloke, you know, doing it bad, you know, escaping from his bedroom. And he knows that the most, the weakest of his soldiers in front of him, are, ma- are mightier than he is. And he's the supreme commander in chief. He knows all this. So, and and we know, this is a facade. And and
0: for me, again, you're reading the book. What replaces this facade? What replaces um, this community? This nature of politics. This nature of belonging, after August. 1914. So we've talked about Roth and his left-leaning politics. There's a, a scene where the workers at a bristle factory uh, are on strike. They are they are shouting um, communist chants and songs, um, and the army is ordered, and Trotter is ordered to fire upon them. And again, this is this is where where.
2: He's well, order to keep them, not quite, his order or to, to keep, keep them... To keep order. To keep order. Which results in him firing so He gets and in despair and, and it just feels like there's a, a whole push to make him do what he doesn't want to do and someone yells out, fire, this is a local mayor or something. He doesn't have to, but things get out of hand. They fire it. lots of people dead. It is, in fact, a scandal. But this is the grandson of the hero, of Solférino. And the empire can't be allowed to have owned up to a mistake. So whereas he should have been cashiered and punished. the, the When the, he finally wakes up, because he wounded himself, all this happens after he's been <laughs> injured himself, he finds that his, uh, the emperor covers up for him. And the myth
0: continues, but then you're, you're, you're reading this and you're thinking, um, is this what Roth um, thinks happens at the end and the decline of of the empire. What does does liberalism replace uh, the empire? Does communism replace the empire? What is it that will allow people to live together? And there's no and 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 to some extent, I'd argue it's it's a pretty nihilistic. Vision, because Roth doesn't know what's going to replace the empire, rather than uh, nation states in which there is no God and where
2: people will go to war against each other. It's so, yeah. But you're quite right. In one says he praises, like in one passage, he praises the empire for having produced people like the Middle Trotter, the District Commissioner, the son good of the you know, Solferino, who was stoic. Heroic in that sense to his sense of mission, but and every week, you know, I think Sunday he'd get his son back from school and he'd go through the lessons and, you know, terrified the boy really terrified him and never showed emotion. And it, you know, it's so sad. You could tell near the end of the book, the son, the father adores his son, but he finds it so hard to reach out to him, and, and that's one of the You know, the the sort of amazing passages of the book where his son gets into gambling debts. And the father's love of the empire sort of rests in his relationship with his son. Once his son does that, he thinks he's got to go to the emperor himself as the son of the hero of Solferino and rescue his son from shame because his son's shame reflects on the emperor, and the emperor must fix this. And he go, pulls all the strings possible in Vienna to get a private audience with the emperor. It's almost unheard, and all these other top bureaucrats that he knows knows is the hero, the son of the hero of and they must. He represents the old empire, and they must, by hook or by crook, get him this meeting with the emperor, which finally happens. The two old men, the two old men stand side by side. The emperor, obviously older, in uh, Schönbrunn, the castle, uh, the palace. And the emperor does give him the money to save his son. The the, the 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 district commissioner sacrifices every bit of his dignity to plead for his and, son. And and the empire
0: rests on the emperor paying the gambling debts of, of his, a of a dissolute soldier who's lost his money at a casino on the edge of the empire. I mean, and and one of the criticisms of of, of Roth over the years has been that some of his writing. Well, not his writing, but his scenes are a little overwrought. Um, and I I think you could argue oh. that is a little overwrought. No, 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 the, it's far-fetched it, it, it's far fetched that he could get it.
2: But I don't know. He does hit you over the head
0: with the symbolism a little bit.
2: Yes, and no. <sighs> Look, it's true, but it's so gently described. And I don't know. It's a lovely I, I love I love the fact, like he said, he, he ascribes a great deal of virtue to that generation and the ones before, right? He, he said, like, you know, such men as the district it's commissioner. It's a little before. heavy, though. Well, he said they kept a heroic equanimity about them, right? Um, back then, he said, I'm quoting here, back then an Austrian district commissioner of the stamp of Herr von Trotter would have been less distressed by the news of his only son's death than the mere suggestion that he conducted himself dishonorably. And... He admires that, but Roth is better than that. He actually says, on the other hand, the pent-up, the refusal to show emotion, how sad. And,
0: and Which von- is the human element of the book because there's a lot of – because we've talked – and I, I read it for the politics, but there's a lot of humanity in, as you say, the relationships between the fathers and the sons, uh, the relationships between husbands and wives, um, and then the love affairs. Um, which Roth gets, uh, Roth portrays beautifully.
2: Yeah, uh, well, I, th- I think they're it, 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 true. That's absolutely true. In this thing where he admires the reticence, the stoicism, the sense of dignity, where we thought, you know, people would die for their honour. That's, that's great. On the other hand, he says, wait a minute, I can understand the appeal of the heart. And the, the, the district commissioner emerges as a hero, finally, for what he does. He even goes begging to the local rich man and gets re- refused. Accept this honour
0: results in the meaningless death of two men in a Correct. duel. There's other suicides as a result of gambling debt. But Roth says for that's this thing a tragedy. Called, for this
2: thing called honour. What's that? I know, but then he says he doesn't uh, – he posits also as a good – I mean – the district commissioner emerges at his best when he loves his son, and he knows his son has disgraced all the traditions. But he will do anything for his son, uh, you know. And you can see the heart beating that he wants to break through all this stuff and just embrace his son and says, "Son, I love you." He, he and this is told in this thing, and, and I think. We're in there a little bit like that, too, or you know forms versus passion and, and emotion, and how you deal with all that kind and, of. and and
0: and again, what what is nice about Roth is um the ambiguity in that, which is can you sustain a community and a culture on honour, which and and uh, Roth portrays the strength and the convention that it it provides and the stability, but also to a certain extent the meaninglessness because people die because a soldier walks another soldier's wife home and they have a uh, and then there's a fight in a in a bar about it and people die and 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 that's the the almost the the shaky edifice on which the empire
2: rests well that is true but that is how civilization rests in one sense, it's like, you know, there are forms. There are forms that limit us.
0: Yeah, but Roth says you can have that, so that's that, or you can have nationalism, no God, no culture, equals Nazism. It's
2: interesting to say no God because he's Jewish, but then near the end of his life, he seemed to feel like he was more Roman Catholic. Uh, It's it's interesting. But I I think Roth 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 knows that we need... Traditions, forms, um, maybe religion, a sense of loyalty to something in order to make one of many. Yes. And some forms are more benign than others. Unfortunately, the Austro-Hungarian one had run its race, that uh, people had no faith in it. He describes all these soldiers, including the, the grandson of the hero, Solferino, had no faith in it. Uh, no, although for some reason he leaves the army and then goes back in World War One to defend. Uh, it's, it's and it, and, it, and it's replaced by worse, by worse, by worse. And and Roth knew that it was being replaced by worse, and he could see it sooner than m- many other people because he knew about these things. You know, particularly I think because particularly because he was such a vulnerable person, Jewish, poor, from the edge of the empire it was fascinating, but you know, I also love. Uh, it's almost like an, an aside. In one sense, the picture of the emperor, Franz Josef. Yeah, you know, if you go to the um, some, if you search the um, uh, internet, you will find. I think it's about the only recording ever anyone ever made of him. Just one line uh, where he says, "You know, uh, it gives me pleasure to to meeting someone." The the form of the guy and. Uh, <laughs> he just he existed and he knew in this book at least that everything was going to rubbish around but him you can't but keep he keep a
0: political entity around the idea of one man around well, the, the myth making of one
2: person but that's that that is one reason why he stayed so long too long because but he had no one to hand off to that he could trust and he
0: had, and he, had he had no no system that was sustainable and again the, the one of the points of the book is what could this ever have lasted? And uh, in the same way as youth can never uh, last, Roth basically says a marriage, most uh, some marriages can never last, um, the empire could never last.
2: No, but in the end, nothing ever lasts. We're all dead in the end. It's uh, whether you can keep it together long enough for now and leave the rest to someone <laughs> that, else. That,
0: that, 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 that's, uh, that's
2: Joseph Roth talking
0: there. <laughs>
2: Well, that's, that's, I think you know. But then, but then, what are you meant to do while you are with us? That is true too. I, I love the I love the poor emperor. So he's caught in this role where he knows he's doing something important for now, and it's all going to pop. But he's got to do it. The way there's little observations of I don't know how true this is of Franz Josef himself, um, where he says in this magnificent piece, he was doing a soliloquy in the moonlight in his nightgown. Um, he says. Uh, Sometimes he feigned ignorance and was glad to be enlightened about things that he understood perfectly well. This is as the emperor. For with the cunning of small children and the old, he loved to mislead people. And he was glad of the vanity with which they tried to, uh, kept trying to prove them, to themselves how much cleverer they were than the emperor, that is. He hid his cleverness and simplicity for it is not right. For an emperor to be as clever as his ministers, <laughs> it's just—you can see that whole Habsburg, but you can also see how it's sort of frozen in aspect, with everyone trying to prove that they're better than the emperor. And it Who going, knows is better was than It never going them. to work. It worked for long enough. The Habsburgs' emper, emperor empire lasted an incredibly long time. It stayed there when others collapsed around them. But uh, and it was better than the alternatives. Well, it was better than the alternative. You that think was. what the Emperor, Empire went through, you know? they The Habsburgs are the most amazing family, I think, probably, in European history. When you think of how some bloke on the Eastern Empire, you know, Eastern edge of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, translated this into something that crossed almost all of Europe, or most of Europe. The Austrians, were, the Habsburg Empire was just enormous. And, By the and, time of Joseph Roth, um, it was now called the Austro-Hungarian Empire but to try to keep it together a bit longer and give the Hungarians a sense of ownership of it. Uh, that's what that was for. And then you know the, the emperor would swear, you know, for a coronation, swear loyalties to both, somehow keeping this shambolic thing together for as long as. And it, and, it it ga-
0: and it gave us one of the world's greatest cities at one of the world's greatest times, Vienna.
2: Well, a country of, what, ten million people has got and, one of the and, world's greatest and, uh, art and, collections. It shows who, you can and, loot and, enough.
0: And, uh, of course, you can't say that without saying, well, who else was Austrian, which is, of course,
2: part of the point. Yes, exactly right. I, I, I like this bit too. The, the sadness of it, uh, talking about the emperor, he had lived long enough to know the folly of telling the truth. He left people in error. And he had le- still less belief in the continued existence of his world than all the jokers all over his great empire who poked fun at him. But it's not done for an emperor to measure himself against jokers and smart Alex. And so the emperor held his peace. And, and, and again, just listening to you reading. So, he wasn't a Trump, R- let me tell you. <laughs> John, just want to go back because I've just found the quote that illustrates a point we uh, we were talking about earlier. The idea, right? So you had the empire of forms that tried to contain all these tensions and and allow people to get on with the uh, living with each other, and then the 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 challenge from you know it also had a weakness that people uh, were more constrained and perhaps it wasn't in tune with the times. For example, the district commissioner, all these forms meant he, his son he had to treat his son with discipline. And you've got to do this and that and duty and duty and duty. But it, it prohibited him from saying openly to his son, I love you, right? And, and that comes later, which is a marvellous part of the book. But in that giving in, there's also the hint of the death of the empire. Here's, here's the, the quote where it's talking, where it, where it's talking about the uh, district commissioner's relationship with his son, the one that dies in World War I talking about uh, this frozen empire, this frozen life under the empire in one sense. For every situation, there was a prescribed attitude. When the boy came home from the holidays, you gave him a test. When he became a lieutenant, you congratulated him. When he wrote his dutiful letters that said so little, you wrote him a couple of measured sentences back. But what did you do when your son was drunk? When he cried, Father... Or when something in him cried, Father, because he had to deal with his son, of course, drunk, desperate for love, and him, as a district commissioner, had certain duties, and they, this dealing with someone's emotions like that, he was at sea. A, wor- a world of forms. But a world of forms, but facing a son in that pain, he just didn't know how to respond. And uh, th- that's the way—the marvelous way the book and, ends. And the father didn't know
0: how to respond
2: uh, to the young son, and the empire didn't know how to respond to the new politics. Correct. And I think we're, you know, almost. Going through some of this right now, aren't we? Like the forms of Western civilization. So Gee, there's so there's some parallels, aren't there? Yeah, there's so little faith in them now. And, and I think mean, mean, this is not a, a parallel, it's almost like an extreme, and we've gone the other and,
0: way. And and this idea of a divided community. What holds us together? What would a person who votes green, who votes liberal, who votes Labour, one national Ah, one nation agree on.
2: Look, that's you know, absolutely correct. But I think you know, it's back then they had different
0: languages. That. Now
2: we ha- we have different politics. I draw one that I, I I don't know that enough people are, are coming to grips with at the moment. This is the new tribalism. It's the same sort of thing. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? It's destroyed by this new sense of we want something more emotional. We want something where we band of brothers. Uh, blood ties—we're defined by what we are empire. against, by what rather than what we are for. But nationalism, we are getting the same sort of identity politics in small, right here. The idea of Australia, for instance, or whether you could talk about America or, or what is or Britain Europe? or Europe. Um, right now, on this very day that we're doing this, we hear Labor saying we need more teaching of Asian languages where children are immersed in a Asian culture. The Victorian government has recently said we want more students taught Aboriginal languages to immerse them in that. We've got the French government suggesting that maybe they should be doing more teaching of, of uh, Arabic in their schools. All this is a sort of dissolution into different identities rather than the core one, right? There's... Not and, so much and, talk about immersing new immigrants into Australian or Western culture. And, In fact, right now, you can't even teach Western civilization uh, a course called Western civilization at because, a university. Because and, uh, we must do, and Roth makes the point,
0: we must do this to live together because only a multiracial, multicultural empire with all those different languages can allow a Jew. To succeed, can allow someone from the far reaches of, of the empire born into poverty to not even just succeed
2: but to live. But you had to have a faith in the idea of Western civilization, you had to have, have exemplars of it. I don't know that we do. I mean, if for even people you can't now, sweep that, everything away, as Ross says, and what are you left with? Well, even when you talk about Donald Trump, we might, we might be appreciative that in some of the forms is defending. Uh, you know, in his case, the idea of America, America first, uh, that's great. But as an exemplar of Western civilization, is a, is a, is a zero. Yeah, and I, I kind of like the Trump project, but I have to say that. Uh, you, you wouldn't look at him as the exemplar of Western civilization. but nor would you look to almost any other leader, not Scott Morrison, not Theresa May. Um, who? Who? Oh I mean, this, is, this, well, this is, is the, the point. Where, and Franz Josef. For Franz Joseph, I mean, it's, it's funny. But <laughs> Franz Joseph, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, well, well, you, you say that, but the, the Habsburgs gave us uh, Mozart. Well, they presided over the Mozarts and the Beethoven's and and, and, and all and, that. And this this book is part of our discussion
0: on great books of
2: Western literature. Um, they gave us such a large part of the West. Well, this is correct, but uh, of course, by the time that Franz Joseph was in his uh, final years, or his last few decades. The greatest musicians they seem to be uh, producing with the Waltz King, <laughs> the Strauss father and son. And that's uh, look, I exaggerate completely, but uh, but there there is something to that. But
0: it, it, it's funny how we, we we talk about Western civilization and culture, and a few times now we've come back to this, haven't we? This dichotomy between culture, between human flourishing and flowering,
2: and the flip side of that. Well. That's that's true, and and in the Rdesky March, it's like the loss of faith in this. This is you see it, the soldiers have no faith, uh, the, um, the trotters lose faith or the youngest one does. And we're in a sim- similar position now. I just think Rhodesky March is going to be one of those books that is going to go on and on and grow in relevance again now, I think. And, and, and that is why Roth is undergoing
0: a, a little bit of a renaissance and, and a rediscovery. And through the, the course of this discussion, that, that famous Austrian phrase was on, on the tip of my tongue, which has now come to me, which I think captures so much of this. The idea, of course, um, that the situation is critical, but
2: not serious. Well, I'm afraid in Roth's case, it was critical and critical. Because what happened after that, don't forget, in World War One, uh, where this book ends, uh, didn't you see the death of uh, Franz Josef and the death of the hero or anti-hero of the book, the uh, death of his father, the death of the empire. Also in World War One, was a corporal, also fighting. Uh, I think he got great honours, Adolf Hitler. Um, that was the new world that was coming. And Roth wrote this book one year before Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany and just
1: a couple of years before he took over Austria as well. Okay, uh, we might just get some closing thoughts from both of you gentlemen. So what makes this one of the ten great books? Well, one, because I love it. Uh, I just lo- I've got this thing
2: about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I just love, love the whole concept of it. The artistic legacy of it, how it uh, expanded, a uh, little bit of resentment that it uh, took over Holland, of course, you know, uh, my relatives, etc. But no, I, I just love it. Also, because of its sense of reality, what it takes to keep people together, political reality, and the, the, the beautiful writing as well. And, and, the, and also the sense that I think it's so often lost their own discourse so often that nothing is all one way or the other nothing's all black or white or you know things are mixed he could see the strengths of the empire as it was and he could see the seeds of utter failure and dissolution and i think that's life what you can do is uh, seek an order that is not permanent but at least will last until you're dead
0: oh we we've picked our books for a number of reasons. One, because they're great stories or because they're great storytellers or because um, they represent a particular form. Um, For me, as Andrew said, Roth is not only a very nice writer with an acute sense of occasion and human frailty, and I don't want to put anyone off reading this book by calling it An intensely political book i'm not sure you can understand the the history of the world in the 20th century without having um an acquaintance with the themes and ideas that roth talks about in the radetzky march so this is a book about art but it's a book about history and politics as well which I think makes it absolutely one of the ten great books of um, uh, Western, Western
2: civilization. I, I think not enough people recognize. When we talk about the death of empires in World War I, you know, it was the death knell, really, for the British Empire, to be frank. I mean, it, of course, World War II was the ultimate bang, but it was, it was essentially going to be over. Uh, the Russian Empire is the one that really ended in World War I and people think that was very significant. And it was significant you know, because of so much that followed the Russian Revolution um, and the Cold War and everything that came from that. But the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in World War I to me marked something profoundly significant which has had huge consequences since. There was a sense of inevitability about it, so I don't want to overstate it, but here was an idea that died, that the Romans started. Don't forget the Austro-Hungarian emperors, quite often were Roman emperors as well. Um, presiding over vast tracts of Europe, various people owing their allegiance to the idea of an empire, and as you say, a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multinational, so to speak, entity. It died, that idea died. From then on, we were all nationalists, as in the idea of a nation state comprised of a people. That's now under attack again. Now we're now multi-ethnic states. I don't know if that's going to work. But that was the ideal, and it disappeared. This great empire that has straddled all Europe, or most of Europe, was finally gone after centuries and centuries. Even Napoleon couldn't kill it. But World War II, uh, World War One, and and this sense of, I don't care anymore. And nationalism ended it.
1: Okay, uh, so that's it for this episode. Thank you to John and Andrew for a really great discussion. We will see you all in a fortnight's time.